Before we return our focus to the Premier League, there are a few outstanding issues to speak about after a week of international football. The final get-together for the participating World Cup nations before the tournament kicks off in Qatar in November. England were behind, then they were ahead, before having to settle for a pretty unsatisfactory draw against Germany. And question marks are still lingering over a number of Gareth Southgate's favourites in the squad. And to make matters worse, that game followed yet another defeat, this one to Italy in Milan on Friday night. But England are not the only big team showing signs of frailty. Defending champions France are behind in their preparations, while the Germans themselves are facing stern criticism on the home front. Cristiano Ronaldo, meanwhile, is under enormous strain in his role as leader of Portugal. His sister Katia is having to fend off criticism from her country's own supporters of her brother this week. It's not just Harry Maguire from the Manchester United contingent who's having to face scrutiny in international football. At this stage, it's looking like Brazil, who are the front runners for the World Cup, but the likes of Argentina, Spain and Netherlands are coming into form. So let's have a quick recap of all things international break before delving into the Premier League, where significant derbies in Manchester and North London are taking place this weekend. Anita Abiyomi and me, Peter Staunton, are joined today by Kaya Kainak, Arsenal writer for Football London and Tyrone Marshall, senior football writer at the Manchester Even News. And with Ronaldo and Maguire facing calls to be dropped for their countries, as well as their clubs, that seems like a good place to start. Tyrone, it's not been the best international break for a couple of Manchester United's uh, biggest players and biggest earners, has it? Uh, no, it's not really. No, they've both had pretty uh, difficult experiences, it'd be fair to say. Um, Harry Maguire is in one of those positions at the moment where it seems that he is... He is approaching a pantomime villain status, I think, with with some of the criticism he gets, which is a little bit unfair. But he's he's had a disastrous break, really. I, I actually felt watching the first half against Germany that he was doing okay and and looked to be playing with a degree of confidence. And then suddenly things just go wrong. And when they go wrong for Harry Maguire at the moment, they go badly wrong. Obviously, he was at, at fault for two goals, certainly one goal, and and mostly culpable for the second as well. As good a finish as it was, played with an injury at the end, so it's. It's been noticeable how little talk there is of whether he'll be fit for the derby or not, because the reality is he won't he won't get a game in the derby. He's not he's not going to get a game in the Premier League. You wouldn't have thought between now and the the World Cup, he's confined to to Europa League games. Really, maybe coming off the bench in in the Premier League. It's hard to see him breaking that Martinez Varane partnership. And it felt telling on on um, Monday night, Gareth Southgate talking about how he has players that he has trusts in, and he wants to keep faith with the players he has trust and faith in unless it becomes untenable. And you do wonder whether it might be approaching that with Maguire, the way he's playing at the moment and, and his total lack of confidence. And Ronaldo as well. I mean, Ronaldo got 180 minutes across two games, played the full game for Portugal, which would be pleasing for United. Ten Hag has been making the point a lot recently that essentially he's still behind on fitness. He, he played 45 minutes in pre-season, did a week of training. So that, that will be of benefit to United, especially Rashford and Martial still out. But the fact is, he again looks sluggish. He again missed chances. He scored one goal all season, which was a penalty in Europa League game in Moldova. You know, it's not where Ronaldo thinks he belongs and, and thinks he should be doing that that Sioux celebration. And he does just look look off it at the moment. And I don't think his own levels of belief will have been helped by by that international break. It's actually so funny that I find it so weird when people mention lack of fitness and Cristiano Ronaldo in the same sentence. Because you look at his Instagram, his social media, and he's all about the fitness. And you expect him to just come into the season guns blazing, but it hasn't been that way, right? And you spoke about Harry Maguire. You spoke about the criticism being unfair. Kai, I'm going to come to you here. Me personally, right, this is a podcast where we give opinions. Me personally, I think the criticism has been warranted, but not to the extent that it has been, right? But Harry Maguire, since the start of the season, probably coming off the back of back end of last season as well, he hasn't looked to be in the best of form. And is it high time that Gareth Southgate just accepts this form for what it is? Or do you do you still believe that Harry Maguire is meant to be in that centre-back partnership for England? Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of social media, isn't it? It's sort of the criticism is way over the top and uh, it's probably too much. And I think, yeah, it's slightly disproportional. I don't think he's been as bad as a lot of the criticism he gets. And I agree with what Tyrone was saying earlier. Sort of he's approaching pantomime villain status and I don't, I don't think that's necessarily fair. I don't think his performance sort of warrant that. Having said that, I was one of the people who was sort of in the camp of, well, Maguire's never really let Southgate down that much for England, so therefore he deserves a chance. But I know it's the Nations League and I know it didn't really matter. It's kind of a meaningless game because England had already been relegated. But those kind of mistakes going into a World Cup are not the kind of mistakes you want your defender 
to be making. And I, I, I do quite like the idea of Maguire in a back three when he can come out and progress the ball. And he, he did that in the World Cup in 2018 and did it really effectively. But back then, he was really confident and he wasn't, he was playing regularly. He wasn't sort of the subject of this national um, sort, of, sort of seemed like scandal every week where he was just being criticized nonstop. He was actually probably one of the fan favorites. I mean, he sort of was affectionately part of those chants, um, the England are in Russia chants. And I think everyone was sort of very much in love with Harry Maguire. And that's really gone sort of full circle. And I don't think that's um, good for him. I do think we've got to the point now where it's probably time to sort of be cruel to be kind with him and sort of take him out of the spotlight. The thing is, it's a risk because it's so late. And because you're doing it this late in the day, you are, of course, uh, sort of having to throw someone in who you've not been playing, um, I was going to say week in, week out, but as close to week in, week out as you can get at international level. And that in itself is a risk. And I don't think Gareth Southgate is a risk taker in any form. So I would be surprised if Harry Maguire is dropped for the World Cup. But I think I personally would look to sort of try and bring someone else in. Anita, I'm going to come to you on this one um, off the back of what Kai is saying because it is late. Obviously, it's 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 a bit late now to be dropping Harry Maguire. Um, you would say that the, the best 11s for each of the three group stage games are probably decided by now uh, in Gareth Southgate's head. But there's two Chelsea boys that play centre-back, one for AC Milan, one for Crystal Palace, Mark Way and Fakaya Tomori, who are established themselves as maybe among the best young centre-backs in Europe. Has Southgate made an error in not trying to at least have these guys with sort of five, ten caps behind them at this stage? So if a disaster was to strike in that first game against Iran, for example, even an injury beforehand, we know Maguire's not going to play a lot of games. Now he's going to have to throw these guys in untested. You know, the funny thing is, I still don't think he's going to throw these guys in. I think he will make do with probably getting Reese James into centre-back or getting Kyle Walker into centre-back, like he's been doing with Kyle Walker in that back three, pushing Kyle Walker to centre-back or pushing Reese James to centre-back, and it works. It still works, but I do think it's a little bit of a disservice to Fikayo Tomori. Maybe not so much Mark Gurhi, because Mark Gurhi, he's only had, what, I think a season of Premier League football, and he probably still needs to come into the team and adapt to the um, culture of being in an England international, but Fikayo Tomori going to AC Milan, winning the title with AC Milan. I'm so sorry. Once Paolo Maldini gives you that stamp of approval, you are an excellent player. Paolo Maldini himself handpicked Fikayo Tomori, and that says something about him and his qualities as a centre back, right? So I look at it and think, okay. Southgate, you've got several right-back options, is it? He's got several centre-back options, but the centre-back options, they're not really working out. Something is missing here, you know? Try Fikaya Tomori, put him in place with somebody else. I think Fikaya Tomori and John Stones would be a good partnership as well. Try something different, try something new, but... It's too late now, ain't it? Bringing him to the World Cup, he's, he's probably going to end up like Ben Chilwell at the Euros, staying on the bench till the end of the actual tournament. And it's just a waste. It is a waste. But at the end of the day, Gareth Southgate, I, like you said, Kaya, I don't think he's a risk taker. He's not going to put Fakaya Tomori in that situation. And it's best that Fikaya, the likes of Fakaya Tomori, the likes of Mark Gurhi, they stay in this team, but they stay in it for the next tournament the next competition because I don't think Harry Maguire will be at his best then John Stones might be in his on his last legs then we don't know so let's wait and see for the next tournament but this tournament is way too late way too late Tyrone, I want to bring you back in here uh, talking about it's too late. Is it too late for Marcus Rashford and Jadon Sancho uh, to play at this World Cup, would you say? I wouldn't be surprised if one of them maybe got in. Um, it, it felt noticeable that when the squad was announced, um, I know Gareth Southgate didn't do any press on, on the day the squad was announced, but he did an interview with the FA and he, he mentioned Marcus Rashford and, and kind of leaving the door open for him. And it was noticeable that he didn't mention Jadon Sancho and it, that made me think maybe that Rashford was slightly ahead. Obviously, Sancho wasn't in this squad on performances alone, presumably. Rashford, we don't know whether he would have been or not because he was injured. Both have started the season relatively well for United. Um, I, I still don't see a scenario where both get in, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if one got in. I mean, it feels that the whole Sancho thing feels like there's maybe slightly more more to it in terms of what Southgate wants, not just from players um, on the pitch, but kind of like that that team ethos and that Club England feel. And 
the the idea when Sancho signed for United for 73 million last summer, I think we all thought that was the takeoff for his England career. It feels incredible that 14, 15 months later, we're talking about him not being in a 26-man squad for a World Cup. But the fact he wasn't in this squad makes me think it it, it might be difficult for him. Maybe Rashford will will have a chance, but I guess Rashford's problem is he's he's got this injury at the moment. Ten Hag told us before the break it wasn't serious, but he, he's not trained this week, so it seems unlikely he'll be in the the squad for the derby. So I, I can still see a scenario if they're playing like they are. I mean, they're both they're both got three goals, I think, this season. I think Sancho has looked sharp, but like I say, it makes me think there's something more to it than than just performances there. And at best, I can only see one of them getting in. I think it's it's very hard to see both getting in when, you know, Rashford hasn't kicked a ball for England since that penalty miss in the final. Sancho's played one game since then, and it was against uh, and or back in October. They've been out of the picture for a long time now, and certainly with Sancho, you'd think if there was any real intent to get him back involved, he'd have he'd have been in in this squad when Southgate picked a, a larger squad. And I guess with Rashford, we don't we don't really know because of that injury. And if I had to guess, I'd, I'd probably say Rashford is is the more likely to force his way in. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Tyrone. I think Rashford. When I look at the England squad, I look at um, Gareth Southgate picking people depending on how much he can rely on them. And you look at Rashford, you look at Sancho, and you think, okay, Rashford's a little bit more reliable. Let's put Rashford in there. But, Kaya, coming to you, you spoke about two of the Manchester United boys, but there are two Arsenal boys, right? And I'm a Chelsea fan, so me saying this is kind of a little bit disheartening, but I'll give credit where it's due. Aaron Ramsdale and Ben White... This England team is, I don't I don't want to say they're screaming for those two, but it will be nice to see these two go to the World Cup and maybe Aaron Rams, Ramsdale get that starting position ahead of Nick Pope and ahead of Jordan Pickford, maybe. Yeah, I, I really thought Ramsdale was sort of nailed on number two and the battle was then going to be between Henderson and Pope for the number three spot in the squad. Obviously, the, the latest international break has disproved that. I did find it really weird that in Jordan Pickford's absence and, you know, He's probably going to be back by the time the World Cup starts. And going into that, you can assume he's going to be the number one because Southgate's never dropped him. But I thought this would be the perfect time to give Ramsdale one game, Pope the other game, and then you sort of make your decision, if that's the decision you're making. But <clears throat> pardon me, he chose to go for Pope in both games, chose to give Pope 180 minutes across the international break. And I thought that was weird, especially given that it's not a surprise to anyone that Nick Pope's distribution is not his strong point. I mean, he was playing for Burnley, who are the team who sort of kicked it long most in the league and you know it was a very effective tactic for them he's a brilliant shot stopper one of the one of the best shot stoppers I think probably the best shot stopper England have but Southgate chose Pickford in the first place in 2018 over Jack Butland all the way back then because Pickford was better with his feet and now it comes to choosing someone who might have to play back up to Pickford and you're choosing someone who's not better with their feet that does seem a strange decision and I do wonder if I think Nick Pope's confidence was affected in the Germany game by a few of the errors he made earlier in the game with his distribution and playing out from the back. And I wonder if maybe if he was feeling a bit more comfortable in his surroundings, if he would have made that error at the end of the game. I mean, that's that's something we'll never know. But I just, I don't feel that, I can't see Ramsdale having those similar problems. Maybe I'm, I'm blinded to it by sort of watching him week in, week out. But yeah, the, the one that I'm, I'm definitely sort of confused by the most is the fact that Ben White didn't even make the squad. I mean, you're talking about Tamoria Gay earlier and obviously two very good centre-backs, but I just, I can't see how when you've got, um, you know, when you're wanting to play a back three and you've got someone who can play in any position across the back three, you can even play him as a wing-back if you really want to. And when you go to a World Cup tournament, you, you need a bit of versatility and players pop up in positions where you wouldn't expect them to because that does just happen across tournaments. Weird things happen in tournaments and someone who's proved that they can play multiple positions to quite a high quality like Ben White seems like an obvious pick to at least be in the squad. I, I get if you don't want to start him, if you want to go for Walker, Stones, Maguire and stick with experience, you know, it's not what I would do personally, but I, I understand it. But to not even have him in the squads is is bizarre for me, just because when you look at the likes of Connor Cody making it, and I get Connor Cody's a great character to have around the, the dressing room and, you know, no disrespect to him. He seems like a nice guy, but I think you need, uh, you need quality and depth um, and you need sort of options. You can genuinely come in and, be relied upon and I think Ben White would would be that and I think in terms of the back three formation trying to dribble out from the back trying to play out from the back Ben White is someone who could really do that and, and give England a chance to to attack more <laughs> which sounds weird to when we're talking about the defenders but I feel like he can move England up the pitch and attack more and 
maybe that's not what the style that Southgate's going to go for. But the best England have looked pretty much since the Euros is in those final 20 minutes against Germany where they did just go for it and attacked. And I'm not expecting Southgate to just sort of throw up all the all the constraints and go help a leather at the World Cup because, as I said before, he's not a risk taker. But if you do want to play that attacking football, which England did look at their best playing, then Ben White is the kind of centre-back you need to be able to do that. Speaking of Arsenal players who are on the outside looking in, um, headed into the World Cup, do you find it, Kaya, do you find it a bit remarkable that Brazil can pick sort of, I don't know, seven attackers before they even get to Gabriel Jesus' name at this stage? Yes. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a word, yes. But if you look at the strength and depth Brazil have in those attacking areas, it's it's ridiculous. And um, Tite was uh, at the Emirates not that long ago for an Arsenal game. I can't remember which game it was, but I think it was the Fulham game. And he saw all three of Arsenal's Brazilians starting, Jesus, Marcinelli and Gabriel, all called Gabriel, which is very confusing. But um, yeah, he, he saw them all and he chose not to pick any of them in the in the World Cup. He's got a very close relationship with Eddie, Arsenal's technical director, because Eddie used to work in the Brazil setup. So I do wonder if maybe uh, Tite saw everything he needed to see from Jesus and thought, you know what, I'm going to try and give some other players a chance because one of the strikers they chose is a guy called Pedro who's playing in the Brazilian league. And, you know, with all due respect to the Brazilian league, if you're playing sort of top, top level European football, you'd think you'd have more of a chance of getting in the Brazil squad than someone who's playing domestically for them. So I, I would be surprised if, if Jesus doesn't go for me, that struck me as more Tite wanted to give other people a chance and sort of see what the rest of his squad is and allow Jesus to, to rest up because I think Arsenal have nine games next month and you'd assume Jesus will be involved in all of them. So it, that's what it, it felt like to me, but um, I don't know. I don't know if that's sort of what he's thinking. I hope that's what he's thinking because it's a weird one. From an Arsenal perspective, it would be great if those three players, because they're both they're all three are important players, if they were able to sort of get two months rest behind them and not risk any injuries or anything like that. But for a Brazilian, playing in the World Cup is as big as it gets. Uh, it's It's sort of the most important thing is the pinnacle of their careers. And if they're left out of the squad, the the emotional sort of, I guess, damage it could do to them and sort of the confidence effect it could have on them and the sort of demotivating factor it could have for all of them, that could be uh, really detrimental. So personally, I would, I'd love to see all three Arsenal players go to the World Cup. I don't think they will. I don't think Martinelli will make it just because if you look at those wing positions, Neymar, Vinicius Jr., Rodrigo, Rafinha, and I'm sure there's plenty of that I'm forgetting. I don't think Martinelli gets into that, but I think Jesus definitely should be going um, uh, to the centre forward. I don't really think Brazil have a number nine like him, except for maybe Firmino, who's not been in the greatest of form for Liverpool. So I I, I, I would expect to see Jesus go. And I, I do think this is more of just a Tite wanting to see what else he's got uh, available to them. Poor Martinelli. It's like <laughs> he's been balling out for Arsenal. But then when you've got like the names you've listed, when you've got those names ahead of you, May, you're gonna have to do something. You're gonna have to carry Arsenal on their back to a Champions League final or something to get to the <laughs> next World Cup. But anyway, I digress. I'm so silly. I digress. So coming back to reality, and Cristiano Ronaldo, he's been a shocker for a lot of people, right? His form just hasn't been great. And you, it's so difficult to say these things about someone you call or someone a lot of people call the greatest of all time, right? But he is 37. He's going to be 38. And it's just, it's good. there's going to be a time where he has to hang up his boots. But maybe not now. According to him, he could go till he's 40, which is kind of scary because he's not a goalkeeper. But hey, um, Tyrone, just to bring you in. I'm not sure if you watched any of the Portugal matches, but did you see any kind of similarities that you're seeing in the Manchester United team whenever he plays with Portugal whenever he plays as well? Um, excuse me. Certainly, the lack of uh, the lack of sharpness in front of goal was <coughs> excuse me was noticeable. Um, I, I didn't see it as much, to be honest. Um, but what what I've been noticing with United this year is. It it does feel like he's lost half a yard. He's just lost that little bit of sharpness. And it it feels watching him like he knows it's happened as well. That he knows he's not the player he was even 18 months, two years ago. That the number of times he he makes runs earlier than he needs to. He's been caught offside so often this season. And you can tell he's he's almost overcompensating because he knows that little half a yard of pace has gone, that little bit of sharpness has gone. And I think with that has come a realization this year that centre-backs just don't seem afraid of him. And it's, you know, it, it's this old adage. When you, when you get to that level, yes, you're an amazing footballer, but also a lot of the time, centre-backs go on the pitch, 
going, oh my God, we're facing Cristiano Ronaldo. This, what's he going to do to us? It, it is going to be a nightmare. And they're fearing the worst. They're terrified of what's going to happen. And it kind of, it puts him on a pedestal. Players like that, like Messi, like Haaland to a degree now, you know, it, it elevates them even more. And, and not only are they brilliant, you've got defenders who are terrified of what they're going to do to them. And with Ronaldo, it, it feels like that fear factor has gone, that defenders just aren't, aren't scared of facing him this year. Um, you know, Real Sausage had a 21-year-old at centre-half and it, it looked like he was just relishing it and, and found it relatively comfortable. Even in Moldova before the international break, two centre-halves who a couple of years ago would have dreamed of playing against Ronaldo all over swapping shirts, would have been excited but also terrified of the idea. Yet they were comfortable with it. They were comfortable playing a higher line. There was a couple of moments in the first half where he got in behind and, and one of the centre-backs just outpaced him and, and took the ball off him and it does look like, it, it basically looks like he's become a, a mere mortal this season rather than immortal a few years ago. And I think defenders are just aware of that. And he's he's lost that he's lost that half a yard with it. He's lost that fear factor and all added up. It, it does kind of play into that narrative that defenders are just more comfortable playing against him now. And that's, you know, that that is clearly a, a problem for him. It's always one of those where you don't, you, you can always feel like you're going to end up with egg on your face writing off Cristiano Ronaldo. Um but at the moment, it does feel like he, you know, he's he's kind of lost that yard of spark. And I'm sure in the summer, he obviously wanted to leave United to go and play in the Champions League. The reality is no one in the Champions League wanted him enough, really. And anyone who did want him, like Todd Bowley at Chelsea, the, the manager didn't want him. So I'm sure for someone like Ronaldo and his ego, he must be looking at that thinking, what's going on when no one in the Champions League really, really wants me enough? So I'm sure there's there's a lot going on there as well at the moment. Yeah, it's um, certainly interesting, Tyrone. I just want to stick with you for a second. I watched the Labour Cup last week, and obviously it was the, the end for, for Roger Federer, and I couldn't help but think of Cristiano Ronaldo because Federer's on one side of the net with Nadal and obviously Tiafo and Jack Sock on the other, and Federer was comfortably, I mean, shockingly, the worst player out of the four. Um, I found, found it really sad, actually, as somebody who, who loved Federer um, going back. And I think Federer, you know, it was 2019, I think, when he last played proper competitive tennis, um, I think Federer has reached that stage. That's why he's retiring. Um, and the signs say, seem to be there with Ronaldo now that, mm-hmm. as you say, he looks he looks like a mere mortal. Um, whether he feels like it's the end himself, I highly doubt it because he doesn't try to use that type of look. But from your perspective, I mean, he signed that contract with Man United. Um, he's not going anywhere because nobody wanted him. He's got the World Cup to look forward to. Mm. But I guess this is a two-part question. Uh, what's he looking for at this stage of his career? And do you think this is the end? I I wouldn't say it was the end just yet, um, purely because he's the type of person that, that could make me look very stupid for saying it. it is the end, even though it does look like we say he's, his powers are diminishing. In terms of what he's looking for, obviously he didn't get that Champions League move and he could have perhaps consoled himself with staying at United and being a, a major part of a rebuild under Ten Hag, of getting the club back into the Champions League, back closer to the title. But not only has he not got a Champions League move, the reality is he's not in Ten Hag's best eleven at the moment. He's he, he's played the last two um, Europa League games. He'll probably play this weekend because Ronaldo and Martial aren't available. Um, although there's there's still the possibility that he, he picks someone like Alanga and goes for that more mobile front three, which I think would would probably signal the end for Ronaldo. And in terms of what he's looking for, like say he he's got that World Cup to look forward to. I think if he if he does drop back out of the United team, what he does in that World Cup, I think will condition his next move quite substantially. If he scores five goals, six goals in the World Cup, then I think he'll I think he'll push to go again in January, especially if he's not in the United team. And there might be in January a market for him amongst Champions League clubs. We're seeing Bayern Munich struggling; they were linked in the summer. Would they panic to agree and look to sign Ronaldo? Chelsea, if they're still struggling for goals, would they think we, we can get him in? Um, even a club like Napoli, who were doing really well in Italy, but they might think he's he's the X factor we need to get us over the line. Um, so I can see him looking to to go again in January. And like we say, if he's had a good World Cup, if he scored five goals in the World Cup, I think there'll be a market there for him again because he's Ronaldo and because he'll have shown something. But it, it's kind of been a double whammy for him this year in that he didn't get the move. Not only that, but he's he's not in 
he's you know he's not the leading man at United that's that's leading this sort of Ten Hag revolution. The fact is he's he's the Europa League striker at the moment, and if Rashford and Martial are fit, he wouldn't be in the team, and he probably wouldn't be the first attacking sub either. Um, and if, if that continues, I think he'll definitely look to go in January. Whether that's to whether he has a good World Cup and that to a Champions League team, or whether he just accepts he needs to move and and even go. I've always thought going back to Sporting has got a real possibility for him. He like we might like to do that. Obviously, we know clubs in Saudi Arabia are desperate for him. I'd be surprised if he's at that point yet, but you, you certainly wouldn't rule it out for him if he has a bad World Cup and, and does kind of realise that maybe his his career in the Champions League is essentially over. Because I'm sure he'd rather play than than sit on the bench for United and play in Moldova every week in the Europa League. Yes, what you've just said it just sounds like harsh realities because you know I've grown up on Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Next is going to be Lionel Messi, but um, running behind half a yard, you know. So it's just we're coming to an era where a sporting era, in fact, like you mentioned, Peter Roger Federer retiring the other day. Cristiano Ronaldo, he keeps saying he can go until he's 40, but you're right. Maybe we might find him in Saudi. We might find find him in China. We don't know yet, right? But what we do know is that he's going to this World Cup, regardless of what happens. He's going to be in that World Cup with Portugal. It'll be a big shocker if he doesn't go to the World Cup. One thing that I want us to do, and I'm going to go around the entire table, right? So Kaya, Tyrone, Peter, you as well, get involved. I want us to do our World Cup rankings, right? So I want us to go from one to five of who we think is the highest ranked country all the way to number five of the fifth highest ranked country, right? And I, I was going to start, but I kind of want to hear your opinion first, Kaya. So we'll start with you. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I think number one is Brazil for me. I think mm. it's hard to look beyond them. I think the strength and depth we spoke about before is going to be a real uh, sort of feather in their cap. And then I also think I'm going to have to go France at number two. I think Argentina are going to be a squad, a squad that can cause a lot of damage. Um, I also think that um, it's hard to rule. I, I think I think England could be in the top five, so I'll put them fifth, very optimistically. <laughs> and I think I'm going to go for Portugal, actually, as, as my number four. I think they've got a, a strength in depth that a lot of people haven't really noticed but when you look at their squad you do realize wow this is actually a really strong squad so yeah brazil france argentina portugal and england that's actually a solid selection there but i do have to question the portugal part of it but we'll come back to it tyrone give me your five <laughs> um i would have brazil and argentina first and second I think um, just on form and on conditions and, and things like that, I, I think there's a, a very good chance one of them wins it. Um, it it's, it's difficult with European nations because we touched on before, it feels like all of them have got pretty significant questions to answer. And, and I can see why Kai has put Portugal in there. Um, I think I would look at maybe, oh, maybe Germany at three, just because we know on their day they can do it. We saw glimpses at Wembley, obviously they lost at home to Hungary, but Hungary have surprised a lot of people. Um, Germany beat Italy 5-2, I think, in the last break, and that felt like an eye-catching result. And so much of Germany is down to, to Bayern Munich, isn't it? And Bayern Munich having a difficult time. If the World Cup starts and Bayern Munich have won 10 games in a row, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Germany fly in because the, the team is basically built around Bayern Munich and obviously Hansi Flick knows all those players. Um, then after that, maybe... God, it's so hard because they've all got questions. Like I say, uh, France maybe, I think, at four. And maybe Denmark at five. Denmark just keep keep going, keep picking up results. They beat France in this break. They've obviously got Christian Eriksen, who's just been absolutely phenomenal. But they feel they feel like one of the few nations who are greater than the, the sum of their parts. And there's, there's teams like Spain and Portugal who have got brilliant squads, but don't really play to that potential, whereas Denmark have got a good squad, but, but play well above their potential, and, and that might help them. So I'll throw, I'll throw them in there at, at five. 
Absolutely love that you didn't put England in there whatsoever. Our listeners are going to be putting question marks next to Tyrone's top five, but I'll take it. Peter, coming to you, your top five. Yeah, I'm finding it hard to look past Brazil. Uh, it's the strength and depth that's doing it for me. And also, I think that Neymar, you know, he's he's there's so many player haters out there for, for Neymar who hold the lack of a World Cup. Uh, against his name uh, it seems that every other you know really good Brazilian footballer in history has managed to get a World Cup and he's not managed to get one yet so I think he will really be trying to to, to shake that one off um, by getting this this team over the line and I think this is probably the best Brazil team he's ever played in um, then Argentina I agree with Tyrone I think um, I would have Argentina a very close second I think they're very very solid they're using Messi in a very effective way and they've really solidified that back line from the Europeans I understand the concerns uh, about all the European teams they're all seeing to be a little bit flawed but I do find it I think once things get underway I think Germany will look good I watched them against England during the week I've seen them in, in other games during the, the Nations League as well where I thought they played really well and didn't really get the results but you know I'm looking at their squad man for man uh, and I think they've got enough world-class players and, and a good cohesive unit and a good enough coach uh, to get them over the line and, and make them go really deep in the tournament how many is that that's three number four Look, France seemed to be running out of steam in a big way, uh, same as England, but I still think that, even though he probably hasn't got a clue of his best 11 at this at this moment, Didier Deschamps, I still think man for man, France will come up with the goods and they'll go deep as well. And number five is my wildcard entry. I'm going to go for the Netherlands. And the reason for that is Louis van Gaal has got these guys playing like a club side. They're, they're playing really nice, collective cohesive football they're unbeaten I think in 15 games they've beaten Belgium twice hammered them once uh, and although as I said on this show before they look a bit Europa in certain positions uh, I think they've got some plenty of world class talent um, that could really really see them go far in, in this World Cup so I would say that my outside shot is Holland and I'll nearly put Memphis Depay down as um, my outside shot for top scorer as well so keep an eye out for the Netherlands you even sprinkled a top scorer in there, Peter. You are brave. Thinking a little bit of juice in there. Absolutely love it. Listen, I'm with you. My my top five will definitely be Brazil. I think it's a it's a no-brainer with Brazil for all four of us. Um, Brazil have definitely caught my eye. Um, Neymar, he needs the World Cup to his name to be classified as one of the greatest ever Brazilians, which I think he already is, but that's up for debate for another stream, another time, because we will get into it right now. But I, I put Brazil in there. I put Germany in there. I do put Argentina. I like Kaya. I believe in England. I put England as number five. Um, my fourth one is up for debate. I I I, I think. Uh, do you know what? No, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. I was gonna say Ghana, but that's just because they are my neighboring country. I'm Nigeria, you see, so I've got to choose someone in Africa, don't I? So Senegal. I bought Senegal. I bought Senegal, yeah. Sadio Mane gonna bring it home for Senegal. Not gonna happen, but I just had to put him in there anyway. But speaking of Brazil, right, Kaya, coming to you, we have three Brazilians going to war on Sunday. When I say, or Saturday even, when I say war, I mean North London derby. I grew up watching North London derbies and it was always just head to head, battle after battle. And it's just always so exciting. But going into this derby, you excited? Do you think Arsenal can come away with the win or do you think Tottenham are looking pretty good this season? I think it's a really fascinating derby in the sense that the two teams are almost total antithesis, if that's how you say that word, of each other. Um, they're, they're, they're very much opposite ends of the spectrum. Arsenal and Tottenham are both near the top of the league this season, but they've done it in such different ways. Arsenal have done it by a sort of possession domination, uh, chance creation, uh, trying to sort of strangle the opposition, not letting them come out much. And um, I mean, they, they have points to prove in the sense that they're the only... Big 16 they came up against, uh, they lost. They didn't play well in that game, but they, they lost and they have that point to prove. Whereas Spurs in the only Big Six game, they played did quite well to get a point away at Chelsea and they've done it. So they've got to near the top of the league by counter-attacking. They've been very clinical with their chances. They've, they've not created that many. And when you look at sort of average possession, Spurs, I think, are 12th in the league. Uh, touches in the final third, I think they're 11th in the league. And you, sort of, you look at that and you, you question how a team like that can be 
you know, being spoken about by lots of people as potential title contenders. And the reason is because they have such a, a clinical front line. And you can sort of already predict how the game's going to pan out. Arsenal are at home. They're going to try and go at Tottenham. They're going to go and try and sort of keep them in their own half. But that creates a lot of spaces in behind that Spurs probably are the best team in world football to exploit right now in terms of counterattacking. So it's a fascinating match. It's really hard to call. There's a lot of fitness concerns from an Arsenal perspective. You know, we don't know whether Thomas Partey is going to be fit. Don't know whether Zinchenko is going to be fit. Um, the, the club are sort of assessing them over these next couple of days, and they're hopeful that both will be fit. Uh, both are integral players for Arsenal um, as they, they they head into this derby. And then for Spurs, they don't know if they're going to have Kulisewski. So there's and Lloris is also a little bit of a doubt. So there's 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 a lot at stake um, for both teams. Obviously, bragging rights is a huge part of it. But in terms of, it's it's a bit silly to call it a title race seven games or eight games into the season. But that upper end of the of the, the table where you want to sort of make a, a statement, Spurs will want to make a statement in the sense that they want to say, look, we're not we're not sort of going away anytime soon. We're here to be taken seriously. We're 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 at the top for a reason. People have been critical of them, questioning whether they're sort of as good as their their position in the table suggests. When Arsenal, as I mentioned before, haven't beaten big six opposition this season. They've they've had a, a relatively fortunate start to the, the season when it comes to the fixture list. So it's a fascinating match for so many reasons. There's so many individual battles which present so many sort of, as I said at the start, differing ways of playing football. Both effects are both fine, but they're just different. And I think it's going to be a really, really, really good game. I really hope so because um, there's two managers on the touchline who are going to be going insane the whole match. Hopefully we'll see another sort of repeat of Tuchel versus Conte type antics with Arteta and Conte. I think that'll be fun for us all. We saw a little bit of that in the reverse derby and also yeah there's the added sort of motivation of that where this time well towards the end of last season Arsenal and Tottenham played North London derby at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium Spurs won that convincingly and ended up finishing top four so there's there's sort of revenge aspect as well in that so yeah I'm really excited for this game I think it's going to be a really fascinating match Um, I'm hoping you don't ask me to call it because it's very difficult to call and I don't want to be nailed nailed down to a prediction Uh, yeah so I'm I'm very much looking forward to Saturday lunchtime I think, um, Kaya, I'll, I'll, I want to stay with the Derby. Tyrone, we'll bring you back in in a minute. I just wanted to stay with this Derby for a moment. Um, you mentioned, you know, it's been a really good start to the season for Arsenal. And, and this week during the international break, I've read countless articles which are Arsenal are the real deal, Arsenal are title contenders, Arsenal this and that. But, but do you still hold that fact that, you know, obviously there's that defeat against Manchester United, um, they've not beaten top six opposition. Do you still hold that as a, as a maybe a little bit of a handbrake against getting too excited about this particular Arsenal team? And in that context, will we learn an awful lot about this Arsenal team um, in this fixture? Yes, I think that is a very fair criticism of this Arsenal team. As much as they did play well against Manchester United, and I think you know anyone who watched the game would, would agree it was quite an even contest, I do think that you have to beat those big teams to be able to be considered by everyone else to be title challenges, if you want to call that. I don't think anyone in around the Arsenal fan base is realistically suggesting Arsenal are going to be title contenders. And I do think there are strength and depth issues in, in certain positions. So if something happens to Gabriel Jesus, for example, and he's on four yellow cards, so if he gets booked in the derby, which is a possibility, he'll be suspended for the next game. And then that front line, which has been so effective this season, suddenly doesn't look so potent. So I think, I don't think it's realistic to say that Arsenal are title contenders. I, I don't think that's what they're aiming for. I think for them, it's just get top four this season, get back in the Champions League and then, go from there and if you want to do that if you want to finish in the top four if you want to play Champions League football you have to beat teams like Spurs you have to beat teams who are sort of big six opponents and Arsenal haven't done that yet this season so it's a criticism that's going to be hanging over them until they do it and I think it's a fair criticism and hopefully on Saturday they can they can address it I do I do want to be cheeky Kaya and ask you what your score prediction is <laughs> I knew I said I didn't want to do it um, it's because you said you didn't want to do it. I, I thought, yeah, I'm gonna have to make you do it. I should have kept my mouth shut. Three one Spurs written all over it. I'm sorry, Kaya. I know, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean, Peter. I know exactly what you mean, and I, that's why that's why it's so difficult to call because I think Arsenal will probably have a lot of chances, and I can see Spurs not having many chances and being really clinical. I think the, the most comparable game for me with this current sort of Arsenal vintage, if you like, and Spurs the way they're playing is that game that Spurs played at the Etihad in January where they beat City 3-2 with, um, you know, I think City scored a penalty in the 94th minute and Spurs still managed to to get a goal. And that day, Spurs basically sat back the entire game. I think they had like three shots on target or something close to that. And they were clinical and they managed to to win. So 
having said that, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go just because of the the record at home in North London derbies. Arsenal tend to win their home North London derbies. Spurs tend to win their home North London derbies. So I'm gonna go for two one to Arsenal, but I am caveating that with the fact that there's a lot of scope for me to be wrong. So make of that what you will. Do you know, I love the confidence. You have to back your team. You just have to back them. And you're right. Your record in North London derbies at the Emirates has been absolutely impeccable. And speaking of impeccable records, Man City have broken almost every single record the Premier League has to give. But Tyrone, Man United, go up against Manchester City in the Manchester derby, right? And Man United are known to cause a little bit of an upset against Manchester City. Obviously not of recent times, but they do have the capacity to caused an upset the way they caused an upset against Arsenal as well because nobody expected Man United to actually go, win at, um, against Arsenal I, I certainly didn't anyway but nobody expected that could this be another situation where no one expects Manchester United to win but they have a very good chance of coming away with the three points um, I wouldn't say a very good chance um, I think um, like I say I think certainly no one expects them to win Um they, I mean, they have they've picked up results against good teams this season. They obviously beat Arsenal um, at Old Trafford. They beat you know Liverpool at Old Trafford. Both of those games, they had them. They had their moments, and like I say, on the balance of play, I'm not sure they deserved to beat Arsenal, but they took their chances when they arrived, and and that was the most important thing. They're on this this great run in the Premier League, four straight wins under Ten Hag. It's been a remarkable turnaround, really, from the nadir of that Brentford game when it, it felt just things were. We're running away from him and getting out of hands. They've turned it around really well. I think there's in those four games, there've been there've been results to build on. There's been good moments in them. I've not really looked at any of them as as I don't think Ten Hag would have looked at any of them and gone, "That's a ninety minute performance I want from my team." I don't I don't think we're at that stage yet. And I think he's he's had to compromise with things like De Gea playing out from the back and things like that. And credit to him for the way he has compromised. The most important thing at this stage is you get results to build confidence and then try and build this style of play. But I don't think we're there yet, so I think they'll they'll have to they'll have to be disciplined there. Um, you know, I think there's there's promise with the centre back partnership in Martinez and Varane. They're two excellent players. Martinez has recovered really well from a shaky start, and I think they can they can make life difficult for City. But I still think it would be a major surprise if if United got the win. And it's also, we don't know how, I mean, they've not played a Premier League game since that Arsenal game. It's, it's going to be exactly four weeks on Sunday since they played a Premier League game. They've played two Europa League games and, and how that affects them is, is, is going to have some effect on the game, I think. Um, I wanted to, to stay with you, uh, Tyrone, because it's it's been so long since we saw Man United play. I mean, I actually forgot Anthony signed for them there at one stage during the week, <laughs> but he, he has played for them once. He has played and scored. Um What's been worked on over these last two weeks, even these last four weeks? You mentioned those Europa League games, but you know they're kind of a bit of a sandpit when it comes to when it comes to big Premier League teams. It's you know they kind of test players out and whatnot. What's been worked on? Well, what would you expect from a, from a Man United team going forward? Specifically on this match, do you think they'll be playing in that sort of reactive way that Solskjaer played these derbies, or do, are we going to see Ten Hag's vision of Man United and go toe to toe with City in this match? I don't think we'll see them going toe-to-toe with them just yet. Um, I think it's it's been noticeable that the, the goals they've scored this year, Anthony's against um, Arsenal, for example, the goals they're scoring tend to be when you see Ten Hag's play coming to the fore. That was a, a great goal where they, they moved upfield, they went backwards, everyone was involved and they kept the ball patiently. And you see in those moments, but not consistently enough for them. And I think... It, it was noticeable in that second Europa League game against um, Sheriff in Moldova that he played a much stronger team than he had done against Sociedad. And I think that was undoubtedly because at that point they'd had the Tottenham game postponed and the Crystal Palace game postponed. And he knew that A, those players needed minutes to to keep the rhythm, as, as Pep Guardiola likes to say, and also to to work on things. And it is it is going to be interesting. I mean, it's not helpful with this international break. I mean, I asked him in Moldova what if he was going to change things with this break because of that lack of game time. And I mean, he made the point that ninety percent of the players aren't there, and that you know they posted footage from a training session yesterday, and there was maybe a dozen players there, and half of them were were youth were youth teamers or, or players you wouldn't expect to be in the squad at least at the weekend. It's in terms of the style, it's it's made harder again by the fact that Martial and Rashford are injured. I think in reality, one of those two would be the starting centre forward at, at City if they were both fit. So 
I do think it's it's going to be a case of of being reactive, of working on the defence again, of making sure they're tight, making sure that they're giving Haaland nothing easy. And I don't think yet we're at the position where we're going to see, I don't think we're going to see a sudden leap forward from that Arsenal game where we saw good spells and good moments from United, but we also saw them having to defend and, and dig in a lot of the time. And I think we'll see a, a very similar performance for that. I don't think the, the four weeks without a game I don't think we're going to watch them at the Etihad on Sunday and think, God, they've made loads of progress in that four weeks because I don't think the circumstances have necessarily allowed for it. And I don't think this is a game where you'll see it anyway because City are well ahead of United of where United want to be. You know, they're finely tuned. They know exactly what they want. And I don't think City will will let United show that side of their game, really. So, basically, defensive ability is going to be very key for Manchester United this coming Sunday. Definitely. But speaking of being defensive and having to be defensively sound, Manchester City, they just seem out of this world with Erling Haaland up front. We were speaking about Cristiano Ronaldo becoming a mere mortal, whilst Erling Haaland is now probably one of the most alien players I've watched in a very long time. With Erling Haaland added to this City um, team, how much more difficult is it going to be to stop him? And just looking at Manchester City, how do you think they can set up in order to give Erling Haaland those passes that he needs? Is it going to be an easy ride for City to get past your midfield, past your defence to Erling Haaland? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, the, the interesting thing is they, they do look like they're unstoppable now, but they have dropped points away at Villa, dropped points away at Newcastle, who are two games you'd expect them to win. So they are they are giving everyone a chance at the moment. I mean, I, I looked at it at the start of the season. I actually thought it would take... I thought Holland would get to, to a level like this, but I thought it would take time. The speed of the adaption has been frightening, really. And it, it, it does feel like they've got a really good setup at the moment. Watching them, I did the Wolves game before the international break, and watching them there, I mean, the, the way the way that they create chances for Haaland is, is so often to get players wide and, and whipping those crosses in. With Grealish's first goal, as soon as De Bruyne got in that position, you thought it was going to be a goal. The only surprise that it was Grealish that scored it and not Haaland. And it felt like that, that game, they had such a good balance in that they had De Bruyne and Bernardo basically as the number eights. Regularly, they'd both make a run around a wide man cutting in field. So Foden came in field for the first goal, gave it to De Bruyne. Suddenly, they've got an overload down the wing. They're whipping that cross in. Haaland's almost undefendable in that situation. And it is frightening. And then he goes and scores a goal with his right foot from 20 yards just to, to prove he can, he can do anything. And in that instance, it felt like Max Kilman was backing off thinking, well, this guy's a tapping merchant and he's 25 yards out. So, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And oh, he scored with his right foot from 20 yards. So... Um, he is, you know, he is a bit unstoppable. And the, the encouragement for United is that Martinez did stop him last year in the Champions League, and Ajax beat Dortmund four 0 in Amsterdam last year. And I think Haaland had chances in that game, but Martinez played pretty well against him. So that that is encouraging. It does show that he he might be be a human after all and might be stoppable. But it does feel like the missing link for City, and, and as they sort of develop even more into playing with him, they do they they feel like a, a, a potentially frightening football team. Kaya, I, I wanted to bring you back in here on City. Um, I read some comments during the week from um, from David James, who who made the suggestion that Bukayo Saka should perhaps dump Arsenal um, and jump at the chance of uh, of joining Manchester City. Um, I'm not. I mean, I take it you don't agree with him. But anyway, I, I just wonder, could you give us an update on on how things are progressing with Saka, his future at the club, uh, how things are behind the scenes between the club and the player, and you know, if there is any imminent danger that Arsenal are going to lose one of the brightest academy prospects maybe that they've ever produced? Yeah, so the, the current state of play is Arsenal are confident of getting that contract done and um, Bukayo Saka did an interview um, well, it was sort of a, a mix zone after a Premier League game against Aston Villa I think it was where he said he shared that confidence so that would seem to indicate that he wants to get the deal done, I think Arsenal wants to get the deal done um, the thing is that Bukayo Saka's agent is also the same agent as Eddie Nketiah and uh, Flo Balogun. They're all the same agency. And those negotiations have, have sort of rolled on until the very dying minutes, um, especially with Nketiah in the summer where he was technically out of contract for a little period before he's ended up signing a, a five-year deal. So I'd, I'd expect it to roll on. Um, Bukayo Saka's relationship with Mikel Arteta, with the Arsenal coaching staff, um, with Edu, with everyone at Arsenal is fantastic. They don't want to lose him, of course. Um, they're, they're not sort of planning for it, but part of their project 
is sort of building to sell players eventually and to sort of have players in ready to to take over. I don't think that's what they're playing for now, though. So yeah, Saka, the contract wise, I, I think realistically he will end up staying. City did offer, uh, well, they gave, I think, a contract extension to Mahrez over the summer, if I'm not mistaken. So that would seem to sort of indicate that they're moving away. Obviously, they've also got Phil Foden, left foot player, plays a lot on the right as well. You know, they've got so many attacking players. And I think Saka's quite happy where he is at this stage. His career is only just turned 21 to sort of build himself up at Arsenal. And then maybe in a few years' time, if he decides that his sort of career ambitions would be better served by going to Man City, we'll, we'll see. But I think in, in this current sort of contract negotiation round, if you like, I think he is likely to stay at Arsenal with a club of confidence and he shares that confidence too. I hope he stays at Arsenal. How many more attackers do City need to have? <laughs> Let's just keep him at Arsenal. Let's keep him happy. Keep him in London. He's got his family here. I'm sure he's really happy to be here. And let's see how the contract talks progress throughout the... We've got a few months anyway, throughout a couple of months. And let's see, maybe before the end of the year, he might have signed a new contract for Arsenal. But unfortunately to all our listeners, I know you're quite sad. We've come to the end of this of this podcast stream recording. I know you guys are going to miss us, but we are back next week with some actual Premier League action. Thank goodness. We have been starving for some Premier League action and we are back. We're going to be discussing hopefully two exciting derbies next week. So hopefully we'll be, we'll be back discussing those. But please make sure you let us know what you thought about today's episode make sure you get involved in the conversation let us know whether you think our power rankings were absolute rubbish or whether you thought that you actually agreed with some of us let us know what you think about Maguire what you think about Rashford what you think about Sancho and let us know some of your predictions for this weekend's I want to say double derbies can I say that double derbies I'm gonna say double derbies anyway just let us know make sure you find us all on our social media. I'm sure Tyrone and Kaya, you both have some interesting articles coming out um, very soon about these derbies as well. So make sure you go and read up on those. Guys, make sure you subscribe. Thank you, Tyrone. Thank you, Kaya. And thank you to my co-host, Peter Staunton. Thank you very much, sir. Yes, thank you. And we'll see you all next week. (laughs) 